Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Well, happy Mother's Day once again to all the moms. I'm especially excited to be teaching on Mother's Day because all the moms are here, which means half the crowd is going to be listening today, which is great. And only half are laughing because the guy's like, what do you mean we don't listen? <laughs> we know the truth. We know you don't listen. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. We're unpacking a series called Other Hard Questions, where we, we're discussing and really, you know, very, in a very direct way, many of the challenges that people have about the Christian faith. And of course, some of these questions have been solicited from our congregation. People have wrote in that they're specifically interested and curious about. And some of the other questions that we're discussing are some of the well-known challenges that we have to the Christian faith. And so today on Mother's Day, we're going to attack one of the most kind of difficult and indicting questions that people have about God and about the Bible, because many people believe that the God of the Bible is sexist, specifically misogynistic, oppressive to women. And this is a commonly held belief among certain circles, especially academics and skeptics. In fact, one of the best known skeptics of the Christian faith is a man named Richard Dawkins. And after he spent kind of an extended amount of time with a thesaurus, he developed this indicting declaration of who God is. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably, I hope I can do this, the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So we're going to answer all those questions today. I promise we won't. We're going to specifically focus on the charge that God is misogynistic. In fact, this quote about God is so popular that another author, Dan Barker, picked up that topic, God is the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, and wrote a whole book developing all of these different criticisms of God. In terms of misogyny and sexism specifically, in a few years ago in 2015, the National Radio of England, BBC Radio 1, they did a podcast and talk series on what are the most misogynist books ever written. And this was kind of sparked because of the interest in the Fifty Shades of Grey book, which was around the same time. And as they dug deeper into it, they decided that Fifty Shades of Grey is the second most oppressive book in the history of our society for women, behind only, of course, the most oppressive book in their opinion, which is the Bible. So that's why we're here to ask this question, is God sexist? And we're going to walk through it in three different ways. First of all, where does this reputation come from? I think some of you today are very, in a fair way, saying, I've never heard this before, that God is sexist. So where did this criticism come from? 
what does the Bible actually teach about women and about gender and about equality? And then we'll talk about why it matters. Okay, so some of the most common ways that God, in their opinion, has developed this reputation of sexism is this. First, when God created woman, he called her the helper, the help, the assistant, the one who comes along behind. And they look to this verse, Genesis 2, says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Because for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And this sounds very alarming. It already sounds very hierarchical. We have the man, and then we have the helper. It seems to be what we're getting out of the text, but you have to dig a lot deeper into this word. In the Hebrew text, the word for helper here is a word called ezer. Would you say that? Ezer. You don't say it very loud. Say it again. Ezer. Thank you. Even the guys participated that time. Very exciting. They're trying to behave because mom is here, right? Good job, guys. You can make it, I promise. Ezer is used principally in three contexts in the Hebrew Bible. Number one, what we're talking about right now, relating man to woman, especially at the creative point when women were created. The second way that this word is most commonly used is for the assistance offered between kings of different nations. Used a lot in the book of Daniel, actually, talking about how one king helped another. He was Ezer. And the third context this word appears is the type of assistance that God brings to his people. So who lends Ezer? Women to men, king to king, and God to his people. So you cannot say that Ezer has to be offered from a lower position. In fact, that would be heresy. Because none of us here should believe that God exists to serve man. Just as one king would never say that he exists to serve another king. In fact, you might be famous with this short poem at the beginning of Psalm 121. It says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And guess which word is in both of these verses? Ezer. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my Ezer come from? My Ezer comes from the Lord. So this verse simply, it's being twisted around to say, this woman has always been the helper ever since she was created in Genesis 2, and it's simply not true. The second major criticism is this. Well, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is so patriarchal. This is true. The Bible, the Old Testament, is very, very patriarchal. And why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First, the culture is very different than our culture today. And it can be very different to read truth and value across different cultures. In fact, when you move from one culture to another, it can be a little bit confusing. I'll never forget, I was 22 years old. I moved from California to New York. This was 19 years ago. And when I moved here, I was interviewing for a job at a church to be their worship director. And so we were kind of doing this weekend, and on Saturday, we were going to have an informal meeting. It was in someone's house. It was actually out. It was in August, so it was out by their pool, and we had, they had a worship committee, which kind of sounds as bad as it was, but anyway, they had a worship committee that I met with, and so they, they interviewed me, and the first thing they asked me was this, hey, would you like something to drink? We have beer, wine, and soda, okay? Well, the Christian subculture 
the culture that I grew up in, Christians didn't drink any alcohol. We totally abstained. My parents didn't drink. The people in my church didn't drink. I didn't know anyone who drank alcohol as a Christian. So I thought, this is a trick question. And I am going to pass this trick question. So of course, I asked for soda. And then everyone else at the table had beer or wine. All good, solid Christian people. And I was very, very confused. Like, what just happened? The next day, we went to the church. The church was very warm, very friendly. So I met all these people, dozens of people, maybe hundreds of people. Something a little bit shocking happened to me. Women that I had never met in my entire life would greet me and kiss me on my face. And I was like, what is happening? I don't think to this point in my life I had ever been kissed on the face by a woman like that, especially one I had never met. So I thought either I've suddenly become irresistible, like on the spot, or there's just a different culture here that I'm not used to. So when we span culture, we have to be willing to admit that some cultures are very different and it can be hard for us to read into our values of what is right and what is wrong and what is just and what is unjust when we're going cross-cultural, right? But that's not an excuse because I want to go much deeper than that because you should also know the Bible, and you should know this just as a general principle for interpreting the scripture. The Bible regularly reports history without offering explicit commentary. There is a lot of stuff in the Bible that you should not do. You can think of so many of the famous stories in the Bible, you know? I mean, Judas was in the Bible and he betrayed Jesus. Are we supposed to do that? Of course not. The Bible is reporting what happened. The Bible is often history described, not theology prescribed. I'm going to say that again. The Bible is often history described, not theology that is prescribed. And so when you read accounts of murder and violence and war, that does not mean the Bible is saying, here's a great list of things you should start to do. So you have to be very careful when you read the Bible to understand what's happening and what's being said. But why, we're not trying to talk around it, why is the Old Testament so patriarchal? Why do the men dominate? Well, we talked about Genesis 2, when man was created, man and woman together. Genesis 3, right at the beginning, mankind sins. Women and, and men, Eve and Adam, they both sin at the same time. And yes, Eve ate the fruit first, but if you actually read the text, the words that are actually written there, Adam was there when it happened, okay? So there's no blaming. They were both there. It happened one right after the other. So in Genesis 3, at the beginning, Mankind sins. And then God steps out and he makes three statements. It basically says the world is now forever broken because of this sin and three things that are going to happen. First person he talks to is the enemy, the enemy of God, who's a serpent. He tells the enemy, you know, there's going to be enmity, which is an amazing word, enmity between you and these people for life. But eventually one of their descendants is going to crush your head. Yes, you will strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. That's prophecy that Jesus was coming. And the second person that God spoke to was Eve. And he described to her the result of sin. He said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So the result of sin for Eve 
was forever to have very painful childbirth and the establishment of patriarchal culture. It was a result of sin. And then God does turn to the man and he tells him, you're going to toil for the rest of your life. You're going to fight against the ground to produce your, your food. And eventually you're going to die and return to the ground. It's when he explains the mortality of man. So this is the result of sin, that we have patriarchy throughout the Old Testament. Now, what of one of the most hot topics in the Old Testament? What about the polygamy? Polygamy, of course is when a man has more than one wife. Is there polygamy in the Bible? Yes. Is it prescribed? No. Okay, scholars tell us polygamy is mentioned about 13 times, 12 times in the Bible. It was by a very, very wealthy man who could afford to have multiple wives. Okay, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands for how many of you feel ready to take that on, right? But in the Bible, you know, it would be kings, very wealthy people, and they would take on a second wife. But remember, this is described history, not prescribed. And if you read the stories of families that had multiple wives, it did not go well. Rivalry, distrust, disloyalty run rampant. Kings had their lives ruined by pursuing too many women. Uh, Women who were pregnant were cast out into the desert with their illegitimate children. Sisters would end up rivals and hating each other. It was Always a bad idea. In fact, about 10 years ago, I heard one of my favorite pastors, he was talking about this, and he challenged the whole room of pastors, and he said, I challenge you to find one time in the Bible that polygamy actually went well. And I've been thinking about it for a decade, and I haven't thought of of one yet. So it might be there. In fact, maybe after this service, you'll show me where the three of them lived happily ever after. I haven't seen it. So for someone to tell you, well, the Bible promotes polygamy, it's just not true. If you read it, that is not what happened. It is simply reported as being part of the culture. The one complicating factor here, and if you were with us during our series on Ruth, you'll know what we're talking about. If not, I have to move through this quickly. But there is a, there is a law in the Old Testament that was because of the value placed on women. That law was the law of the kinsman redeemer that said, if, there is a, if your brother has a widow, your brother has died, she is a widow and she has no children, Your family is responsible for her. She's not left alone. She's not abandoned. She doesn't become a slave. She doesn't have to sell herself to someone else. It is your job to care for her. And the way that you care for her is you marry her and you give her a child. You raise that child and you provide for both of them. Now, the the text is unclear whether a brother has to be unmarried in order to provide that for his sister-in-law. But I'm not aware of any account in the scripture where he was married and took on a second wife. But even if they did, remember, this was rooted in love and care. Because that would be a statement of saying it is better for a woman to be in a household cared for than to be left alone for dead. So that's one of those cross-cultural things because it sounds very devaluing for a woman to be a second wife. But it's very possible that in their culture, it was that or death and slavery. And so you can see where it's a little hard to span across these cultures at times. But what does the Bible actually teach about women? Got to go back to Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 1. This is the moment of creation. 
Let us make mankind in our image, our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There is no higher statement of value than to be created in the image of God. This is a distinctly Christian viewpoint especially in the ancient cultures. Many ancient cultures would believe that only their single ruler, their pharaoh, or their shaman, depending on the tribe and the culture, that was the only person who actually was created like a god or created in the image of God, and everyone else would serve that person. And certainly, all the surrounding pagan cultures would have found the men to be far, far ahead of the woman in the created order. But the scripture says that both men and women together were created in the image of God. This single verse completely answers the question of, is God sexist? Because he said, mankind, as created as male and female, is all in the image of God. And how does the law teach that men should treat women? The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a woman leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. From the very beginning, it says, when a man takes a wife, that is now the most important person in his life. Not even the family you were born into. I remember this. When I first got married, it struck me as odd in a way because, you know, I have to fill out so much paperwork in life. And especially when you first get married, there's a lot of paperwork. And the first time I had to fill out my next of kin or my nearest relative, it was my wife. And I remember that it shocked me like, wow, my nearest relative changed. It, for years, I would have, of course, said my parents, followed closely by my sister and my brother. But now I cannot say that anymore. They are not my nearest relative. And everyone knows this. If I were to die without a last will and testament, everything that was ours jointly is hers completely. I mean, it's obvious in our law and our culture that a man's wife and, of course, a woman's husband becomes the most important person in your life. In fact, Deuteronomy... It says that the man is required, sorry guys, I have to do it, required to bring happiness to his wife, even at the detriment of the nation. Because if a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. For a year, you can cheer for that, I don't mind. For a year, he is required to bring happiness to his wife. Now, the happiness shouldn't stop after a year, because happy wife, happy life, okay? But the law is clear. These are not misogynist texts. And in fact, if you read all of Deuteronomy 24, some of it gets a little complicated, but Moses is actually writing here, and one of the things he talks about is how families get divorced. And Moses says, you know, if you must divorce your wife because she no longer pleases you. He says it in a very pejorative way, showing the obvious immaturity of the man. If you must divorce your wife because she no longer pleases you, you have to give her a written order of divorce and her freedom, which is a high statement of value. 
It's not to say she cannot be discarded. She cannot be forgotten. She cannot be enslaved. She is now a free woman, and you're going to give her documentation to prove it, which also means he can't explain it away. He has taken responsibility for this divorce. It's a high statement of value and worth. You might say, well, why did he ever leave his wife to begin with? Obviously, we should work on that. But to say, no, 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 if you must, this is Deuteronomy. This is old, old, old law. If you must leave your wife, you're going to have to do it with respect. This is the way that God commands the husbands to treat the wives. Now, the Old Testament is where more of this misogynistic uh, reputation comes from. But I think you can see that with some, just some honest reading, it starts to kind of fall apart. But you can't divorce the Testaments from each other because it's one united statement about who God is. And so we have to look at the way that Jesus treated women. Now in his day, I know it was further along in history, women did not have more rights. They were not more educated. They were not doing better. Sure, there have always been exceptions. I mean, we saw moments of brightness in the Old Testament. We saw Miriam and Noadiah and Huldah, Isaiah's wife. They were all prophets. And remember, prophets had a lot of power. They would speak truth to kings. We saw Deborah, who was both a prophet and a judge. And there's also texts about women who were professional mourners, women who were involved in leading worship in the tabernacle and singing and setting up. You know, there was all these bright moments and spots, but there really hadn't been a lot of cultural progression for women in the day of Jesus. In fact, a common prayer of the men in Jesus' day would be this prayer. And please don't think of this in communion. The prayer went like this, blessed are you, Hashem, which means Lord our God. Blessed are you, Hashem, king of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, Hashem, king of the universe, for not having made me a slave. Blessed are you, Hashem, king of the universe, for not having made me a woman. This would be a morning prayer for many of the men in Jesus' day. A well-known rabbi in the first century said these two statements. If a man gives his daughter knowledge of the law, it is as though he taught her lechery and lustfulness. And he said, it is better to burn the Torah than to teach it to women. This is first century thought. But what did Jesus do? I mean, the longest single recorded conversation between Jesus and one person is in John 4, the woman at the well. The disciples even noted how unusual it was for him to be talking to this woman. Luke 8 is clear that when Jesus was traveling with his 12 disciples, there were also a number of women who traveled with them, Joanna and others, and these women were paying the way. Jesus was well known for his friendship with Mary and Martha, who both loved him each in their own way. Jesus even pushed back against culture when people spoke about his own mother. So as you might expect, the highest pinnacle of cultural accomplishment that a woman might find in the day that Jesus lived would be to bear for her husband a son. You have accomplished your mission in life if you bear a son for your husband. And there are all sorts of terrible texts, uh, you know, extra biblical and others that talk about what would happen to children that were born that weren't sons. Because the goal was to have a son. And so one day when Jesus was teaching, someone pronounced a blessing on his mother. And this is what that person said. As Jesus was teaching, and obviously he was crushing it because he's Jesus, so this is a compliment, uh, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave birth and nursed you. It's, it's, a, it's praise. Jesus, your mother, she must have been amazing because you are her son. Jesus doesn't let it go. Not even close. He said, blessed rather 
are those who hear the word of God and obey it. He says, you're not blessed because you had a son. You're blessed because you hear and know and follow God. Jesus had a remarkable value that he placed on women. An English poet about 60 years ago wrote it this way. They had never known such a man like this man. There had never been such another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unself-conscious. In both his teaching and his saving activities, Jesus reached out to women as persons who were equally worthy as men in his saving activity. This is how Jesus treated the women who surrounded him. And the teaching of the New Testament extends us further, and we could talk about this all day. We could talk about this all month. There's been books that have written about it, but you see in the New Testament church, women were mentioned in important roles as messengers, teachers, and benefactors. Mary and Lydia were hosts of house churches. Phoebe was a deacon. St. Paul talks about a woman named Junius as an apostle. St. Luke mentions the daughters of Philip and Acts as prophets. Paul had ministry partners named Priscilla and Aquila. Her name always mentioned first because she carried more of the ministerial role. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but we're bookended by another statement very similar to Genesis that makes it so clear, because in Christ Jesus, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, neither is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is how God feels about women and men. Every single one of us created in the image of God, every single one of us brought together under the person of Christ. And so why does it matter? First, I think it should be stated, for any person to draw close to God and to love him with all of our soul and all of our strength, we have to understand that God loves us fully and completely for everything that we are. And so for all of our women today, I want to make sure that you know you have the highest place of value with our Lord God and King. He created you. He loves you. He has fully invested himself in you. And I know for some people, thinking of God as a father uh, is, is a warm image, and for some, it's difficult and harsh. Know that God is a good and perfect father. He has loved you with a perfect love. He has never abused. He has never hurt. And he loves you with everything that he has. And for all of us who live in this world where we still struggle with misogyny and sexism. I mean, this is the era of the hashtag Me Too movement, right? We have not figured this out and moved on to bigger things. We're still stuck in figuring out how the genders are to work together. And so for all of us, I think that we should continually be searching our souls to ensure that we are treating everyone that we know, every woman and every man, but today really drilling down, that we treat everyone we know with the highest levels of respect highest levels of dignity, highest levels of honor and love. And lastly, and I, I think it should never go unsaid, 
To be created in the image of God is not only the most humbling, gracious compliment that can ever be poured out on us as his people. It's also a charge and an instruction into the mission of God. God has not simply created you and walked away. God has invested in you so that we can together go out on the mission of God and serve this world together. And so, moms, we're proud of what you're doing. We love you. We wish that every day was Mother's Day. Uh, We're sorry for being idiots on a regular basis. And know that your Father in heaven loves you with perfect holy love. So I'm going to ask the band to come back up together and um, Sarah's going to come as well and they're going to lead us through communion and through the rest of our service. And I want to take a moment to, to pray together before we move into that. God, thank you for this time that you've given us today. Thank you that you've drawn us together into Christian community. God, we know that we're not perfect. We know that in fact uh, we mess things up on such a regular basis. We ourselves Our history described in motion, and often the description of what we've done doesn't please you. But God, I pray that you would, through your providence and your love, train us, that you would teach us how to show each other the perfect, holy love that you've demonstrated, that the world would know we are your people by the way that we love each other. And so we thank you for this. In Jesus' name.